Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello there, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I am delighted today to welcome back Brendan O'Leary to the podcast. Brendan, who is Professor of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania and Honorary Professor at Political Science at Queen's University, has been with us before to discuss his monumental but also very accessible, it should be said, treatise on Northern Ireland. He has also worked as an advisor and a mediator in the United States, the EU and the UK on national and ethnic conflicts around the world. So who better to write a book on the constitutional, political and social challenges of a potential future United Ireland, which is what he has just done in his latest book, Making Sense of a United Ireland. Brendan, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you, Hugh. I suppose in some way, is it too simplistic to say that this book is a logical next step from your previous work? I think it is a sequel to previous work, but with a major difference. I've made a serious effort to be as accessible as possible to the general reader. So um, on occasions, I will uh, explain things uh, in, in a way that is deliberately meant to be available to everybody, not just those who are completely uh, political aficionados. So, I mean, we have talked in the past about how likely the unification of Ireland uh, might actually be within the next, let's say, the next 10 or 15 years. And in the in this book, you describe that as probable but not inevitable. But uh, with your permission, I want to park that question for the moment anyway, so we can get to the what I would see as the meat of the book, which is about the steps that would need to be taken in advance of of unification, because you lay out a couple of different route maps. It, that's true. I, I say that if you take the Constitution of Ireland as it's currently uh, constructed, there's only two feasible models of the United Ireland. In one, a devolved Northern Ireland would continue to persist inside the United Ireland, with Doyle Aaron replacing Westminster in, in terms of major public policy functions. The, the alternative is for Northern Ireland to disappear and for there to be an integrated Ireland. Most people are unaware that the first option is in fact a constitutional option. But rather interestingly, both Michael Collins and Eamon de Valera in different ways ensured that the possibility that a Northern Ireland parliament could be recognised by Doyle Aaron was built in both to the constitution of the Irish Free State and the subsequent constitution of, of de Valera, Bunratna Aaron. So those are the two options. Uh, I arrive at that conclusion by showing that a whole series of other options are either incompatible with the existing Irish constitution or they're incompatible with the Good Friday Agreement. So that's how I arrive at that uh, interpretation that those are the two territorial models of the United Ireland. Because you go through various models which uh, exist around the world to greater or lesser degrees of success, like confederation, for example. And you point out that, that there are really impenetrable constitutional barriers to those, even if they were desirable. And I'm not sure if they would be anyway. 
Well, confederation is always difficult. There is a remarkably successful confederation in the world. It's called the European Union. But two-unit confederations are difficult. And in the case of Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland would first of all have to become an independent and sovereign state before it could be linked to the Republic in a joint confederation. So strictly speaking, that's not compatible with the Good Friday Agreement, which allows Northern Ireland to have only two choices, to be part of the United Kingdom or to be part of a sovereign United Ireland. To my mind, there are a number of arguments against essentially transferring the current Belfast agreement structures across into a new unified state on on the island of Ireland. One would be that the structures haven't worked that well in the you know, almost three decades since they since they were instituted. Yes, they have succeeded in uh, Northern Ireland is a much more peaceful place and probably a little bit more prosperous than it was. But they also seem al- almost to make political log jams and sectarian divides institutionalised and permanent. I think your position, Hugh, is, is widely accepted. Uh, my friend John Gary and I deliberately held what are called deliberative forums. Those are small miniature citizens' assemblies in which 50 people, broadly representative of the population, are asked to consider some important question. And we put it to them that a future United Ireland only had two feasible uh, forms, one a devolved Northern Ireland, one in which Northern Ireland disappears. And most of the public reacted against the devolved model on the very simple grounds that if it isn't working now, why will it work better in the United Ireland? Um, that's objection number one. There are other objections. If Northern Ireland were to be a devolved unit of government, it would create serious problems if there were to be a different majority in Ireland as a whole to the majority from the 26 counties. You could have double majorities. Uh, These kinds of difficulties are very interesting to political scientists. Ordinary citizens are less concerned about them. But the biggest difficulty of all is fairly straightforward. Northern Ireland would be roughly a third of the population of Ireland. And having a unit that large, having its own separate structures without parallel structures elsewhere in the island could create predictable difficulties. There is a further problem I would think which is I mean you referred to you know to Collins and Griffith and the the, the setting up of the the 26 county state after the treaty of the two states in Northern Ireland and that had its roots in various political processes that had happened in the in the lead up to that um, and those processes really operated on and we have talked about this before the the creation of a state which some would regard as gerrymandered but which certainly was designed to copper fasten a unionist Protestant British majority in the six counties of Northern Ireland. That majority no longer exists. So to copper fasten again that particular geographical unit as a way of securing the rights of of people who identify as British seems illogical, counterintuitive, I would think. Well, first of all, it wouldn't be copper fastened because the status of Northern Ireland inside the United Ireland would be that of a devolved unit. So that in principle, Doyle Aaron could uh, abolish the devolved government if it didn't work or if there was a, a lack of public support for the continuation of the Good Friday Agreement institutions. So the relationship of Northern Ireland to Dublin would be analogous to the relationship of Northern Ireland to Westminster at the moment. So it wouldn't be 
permanently entrenched. But you're quite right, Northern Ireland's origins are seen particularly by Northern nationalists and not just by Northern nationalists as stemming from an original gerrymander. And there's there's another point worth making. Generally around the world, you devolve power and autonomy to a group which is a majority in the local area. That's a way of recognizing their special status. In this case, in the model of a continuing Northern Ireland, the majority would no longer be Unionist, British and Protestant. Uh, and in consequence, the autonomy settlement would have a different basis. Clearly, Ulster Unionists have a deep patriotism towards Northern Ireland. They built it. Uh, they identify with its institutions and forms. So the, the most powerful argument for continuing Northern Ireland is that it would be one way of preserving Unionists' affinity and identity with the place that they built, but of course on very different terms. The question which arises, I suppose, from that as a consequence that some might put forward is that some form of repartition in the parts of Northern Ireland Repartition may not be the correct word, the correct word for for a, a form of government in the United Ireland, but some form of political entity which reflected where unionism was still the majority might work. But I think you make very clear how uh, how unworkable and potentially dangerous an idea of that sort is. I'm, I'm glad you think that repartition. I think would be disastrous because it's very very difficult to territorially separate the communities in the north. It might once have been possible to think of a four-county northeastern unit, but as a result of the demographic transformation of Belfast, uh, Belfast is in effect a cultural Catholic majority city, just about. And that was reflected in the recent Westminster elections when three of the uh, four seats in Belfast went to two Sinn Féin MPs and one SDLP MP, leaving the DUP with East Belfast. So it wouldn't be possible to create a neat territorial unit in which Ulster Protestants could be concentrated. That idea of repartition might, in extremis, be chosen by some loyalist paramilitaries as a model to pursue. Uh, So one of the things I argue for in the book is a very careful approach to the loyalist community. They have to be assured that their rights inside the United Ireland will be fully protected. But at the same time, Ireland has to be prepared to exercise law and order to prevent the possibility of a loyalist insurrection. Taking all that on board and taking on board the the premise of the discussion we're having here, which is the context in which a referendum is going to happen and in which in that referendum there is a a strong possibility, if not a probability, of a vote for unification by the time that referendum happens. The conundrum again and again is, isn't it, that unionists, quite logically, I think, will not engage with these questions while they think there's a chance that that referendum will not be successful, because why would they? They'd, uh, there, there, there is no incentive for them to do so. So you have a a debate which goes on, and perhaps a more structured debate, you know, in the form of uh, citizens' assemblies or constitutional assemblies of one sort or another, in which the people who are, if you, if you might say, the the people who are the, the, the locus of concern are the people who are not engaging in the debate. And so the question is, 
how do we um, how do we arrive at a position where we create a, an agreed United Ireland? What are the steps that we need to go to get there? I agree that's a, a fair way of characterising one of the fundamental problems. And just to repeat your point, the, the way I would put it is that the unionist leadership will definitely not engage on the terms of United Ireland before they've definitively lost in uh, a referendum in the North. So the question is, what should the South and what should Northern nationalists, what should others do about that? Uh, I believe uh, several things can be done. First of all, in preparing for the possibility of United Ireland, there should be a sustained outreach to all unionist and loyalist communities, uh, regular efforts to engage at lower level leadership level, uh, regular testing of public opinion and regular evaluation of what forms of United Ireland would be most acceptable if uh, it were to come into being. And John, Gary and I have shown that it's, not, it's quite possible to have these discussions with small groups to say to uh, unionists and Protestants, look, uh, your first preference is for United Kingdom. We're not trying to alter that preference. What we're asking you to address is imagine a referendum is lost from your point of view. Which version of a United Ireland would you find most acceptable? Now, that notion of acceptability can be tapped and explored in some depth. So I believe that uh, we're likely eight years out from the first possible referendum. In the interim, I, I think the, uh, it's incumbent upon the government of Ireland along with all of the formal institutions, the Senate and Doyle Aaron, to do as much as possible to make sure that unionist voices are heard. In all their diversity, we, we shouldn't assume that there's a, a homogeneous voice. So all sorts of questions need to be tapped. Um, what do they find repulsive? Uh, what do they find, find problematic in the existing Republic of Ireland? How would they like to see the Constitution modified? What do they know about the Constitution? Uh, what form of local government would they like in the event of a, a united Ireland? Uh, all of these questions can be tapped and, and posed using uh, deliberative fora, using citizens' assemblies, as you say. Uh, but the, the idea that um, the unionist elite will remain completely consistent, completely refuse to engage, I, I think we should question that. Peter Robinson, a, a former First Minister for Northern Ireland, has contemplated the question and has argued that unionists should be prepared for that possibility. So uh, it's incumbent on those who want a united Ireland to be prepared for, for that possibility. Now, when we stand back from all of this, there is a, a very simple problem, and we can pose it like this. Does the government of Ireland propose a specific model of united Ireland before the Northern Referendum? Or does it instead say, let's have a vote on principle on a united Ireland, and after that vote of principle has been won, that is to say there's been a vote for united Ireland, what form of united Ireland shall we build in a constitutional convention? Now, you can see that the first choice, specifying a particular model, laying it out in maybe 600 pages of text, simplified videos, or whatever, that means that the public knows what it's voting on, north and south, 
when it's voting for a united Ireland. And that gives them some degree of clarity. Uh, but it has a cost because it means that the South chooses the model of unification for the North, which can take it or leave it. The alternative, voting on principle to create a constitutional convention, which would then uh, potentially redesign the institutions of the whole island, uh, that has the virtue of enabling unionists and indeed northern nationalists and the others to have a voice in the remaking uh, of a united Ireland. But it also has a problem. The problem is that uh, people don't know what they're going to get because you can't predict the outcome of a constitutional convention. So that, that difficulty, choosing a model or choosing a process to pick a model, is, I think, the central dilemma facing the government of Ireland in the decade ahead. What should it do? And I, I don't think I'm the person to give the answer to that question. I think the people to give the answer to that question uh, are the elected representatives of the people of the Republic. But they must go through uh, and analyse that particular dilemma that I've identified. Um, I mean, this is very much at the core of your book. Is it a binary choice? Is the model approach and the process approach a binary choice? Or is there some, uh, some middle way? The answer is yes and no. Uh, uh, yes, it's a binary choice in that you must either uh, say before the Northern referendum, this is what a United Ireland will be like. Or you must say, ah, oh, if you vote for a United Ireland, we will have a constitutional convention. And in that constitutional convention, we will decide uh, what a United Ireland will be like. I think that choice can't be avoided. But if you do take that second choice... You have to answer the question of what the transitional arrangements will be in the United Ireland before the Constitutional Convention has met and deliberated and presented its results for the citizenry as a whole to vote on them. Uh, you would have to have um, an outline of how the government of Ireland will operate in the interim, because I'm assuming, uh, and I, I agree it's an assumption, but I think it's a sensible one, that there would be a rapid transfer of sovereignty after the referendums had resulted in a vote in favour of unification. So if you do pick the process approach, you can't avoid designing transitional arrangements. And those transitional arrangements might be a good guide to what a United Ireland might actually be like. So in the transitional arrangements, do you keep the Northern Assembly if it's sitting? Or do you suspend it and decide its fate in the Constitutional Convention. So you're right that it isn't a simple binary choice, but at a fundamental level, there is that choice. What do you go with first? Do you go with a Southern-designed model, which takes into account Northern sensibilities, or do you go for a process, a Constitutional Convention, to be held after the question of principle is satisfied? I suppose what I, what I wonder, and I found this part of the book you know, fascinating, is that you know, is it possible for Irish nationalism, North and South, including the Dublin government, to paint a very clear picture of the United Ireland it plans to implement without that being completely locked in by the by the votes in the referendum on the other side? In other words, to say this is the settled will of of the main political parties on the, on that side of the divide, but there is some leeway for negotiation at a constitutional convention when unionists come to the table after the decision after the constitutional decision has been made. 
Well, if you take the first approach, the model approach, then it's true that the South has specified what a united Ireland would look like. But once a united Ireland is created, then you have uh, a transformation of the citizenry. You have um, at least uh, an extra population of somewhere around two-sevenths, and perhaps as, as much as a third. And they are going to have votes. They're going to be represented in Doyle Aaron and in the Senate. And they can shape future constitutional amendments. So even if you do take the model approach, um, there is, uh, as you suggest, uh, an opportunity for subsequent change uh, and reflection. If, for whatever reason, the largely Southern-designed model uh, has difficulties and doesn't appear to work. And the advantage of Ireland's existing constitution is that it, it allows um, significant flexibility in constitutional amendment. So to, today's our Irish constitution is unrecognisably different from that drafted in 1937 on a whole range of questions because uh, amendment is relatively easy. And the dilemma here, because there are lots of dilemmas, is the easier it is to amend a constitution, then the easier it is to remove the protections and securities that might have been built in for a specific minority. And in this case, we're thinking about the British Ulster Protestant minority, which would be roughly one-seventh of the island, maybe as high as a sixth, depending on uh, subsequent demographic change. So you need to think of ways in which their securities and rights can be protected, perhaps in ways that would involve special amendment procedures. So if you were very confident that a certain set of rights needed to be protected, and this had widespread support among Ulster Protestants, and this was widely accepted at the time of the referendums, you might want to protect those rights against simple majority change amendment procedures. You could require a significant qualified majority, or you could require a majority uh, for change uh, in a, a certain number of counties in Ireland uh, as a way of uh, achieving consent for any future amendments. And the similar protections do exist for minorities in various uh, in various countries around the world. And, and you do look at a number of different models. Everywhere is very different from everywhere else. You know, Germany is huge compared to Ireland, but there are some lessons to be learned from its unification process in the in the early 1990s. Uh, one I wasn't particularly familiar with, but which you cite, which is relevant to this, this issue we're talking about here, I think, is Cyprus, where um, a referendum was defeated partly because of um, resistance to certain specifics, uh, specific proposals as to what would arise as a result of that referendum. Now, there were lots of other complex local issues about, about, about the process itself, but that might be the, I suppose, the tactical, pragmatic, political argument against painting the whole picture is that it'll uh, make it easier to shoot it down. For example, on thorny issues like a proposal for what to do with a health service or education or those types of things, that it might actually reduce the vote for those who want to see a vote for a United Ireland. It might make it less likely. Right. The, the more detailed uh, the proposals, the more uh, certain interest groups might see their uh, position adversely affected. You're quite right. That possibility exists. You raise Cyprus and Germany. Cyprus is fascinating because... In 2004, under the Annan plan, 
there was an attempt to reunify Cyprus, the north, um, largely now inhabited by Turkish Cypriots, voted solidly in favour of reunification, whereas the south voted against. Could we have that in our future referendums? I think we could have that if, as you suggest, the terms and conditions um, appeared to be adverse to the interests of large numbers of southerners. So that might be an argument for going, as you suggest, down the principal route of going for uh, a constitutional convention. So none of these things are entirely predictable in their outcomes, but they do have to be thought about and hammered out in public debate, in my view, in order to avoid the worst outcome. And the worst outcome would be to have a set of referendums that resembled the UK's Brexit referendum of 2016. Whereas everybody knows there was a clear alternative, um, namely to remain in the European Union, but a completely unclear alternative leaving the European Union, which was not properly defined. So I think it's the duty of the government of Ireland and for all political parties uh, in the South, whether they're represented in the North or not, to help design a, a referendum process in which the outcomes will be clear. There will be this model, subject to amendment, or there will be this constitutional convention uh, run according to these principles. It'll be one or other of those things, and you will know in advance what it is. Because I think if you create um, a lot of uncertainty, and if you appear to undermine a lot of what is currently regarded as good, you could destabilize Southern support for reunification, which is still significant and strong, though when you ask about specific questions, uh, you might get uh, greater reluctance to accept unification. We go back again and again to the core question here, which is how to assuage unionist fears of being swamped or having their rights minimised. We do have to recognise, don't we, that we live in both on, in, on both political jurisdictions in this island, we live in an increasingly secularised society that has socially transformed in in many ways. And I wonder, you know, to what extent the idea of their even the um, the sort of the the two tribes idea, which which informed the the Good Friday Agreement, how relevant that is, and how relevant it continues to be um, into the you know, into, in, into the future and whether, I mean, some people might feel, and I'll be honest, I feel it myself, that the rights and um, and the identities of everybody on the island should be universally protected by a constitution, uh, which does that, whether, you know, whether you need to bring you elements to that, like a Bill of Rights, that that would be better rather than copper fastening um, quasi-sectarian, quasi-national identities into the future in, 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 in a constitution. Um, and I suppose that brings us to the question of the Irish Constitution itself. And you kind of you look at various aspects of various aspects of it. You look at how much it might need to be altered, because of course altered it must be if there's a if there's a United Ireland. The nineteen thirty seven Constitution uh, has been much amended, um, but it still has its roots in a conception of Irish nationality and Irish identity, which is overtly Gaelic, overtly Catholic, and. Some people might feel that's just not fit for purpose and we need to start from scratch there. What would be your think, thoughts there? Well, I, I think we have to contemplate both protection of individual human rights and individual uh, liberties and at the same time take great care uh, 
with protecting long-established historic collective identities, which, as you suggest, need not be as antagonistic as they were in the past. One of our commitments from the Good Friday Agreement will persist, and that commitment is that anybody born in Northern Ireland is entitled to Irish or British citizenship, or both. That means that the Republic of Ireland has to contemplate having a large portion of its population which has a dual citizenship identity. Now, of course, that isn't up to the government of Ireland alone. It it requires the government of the United Kingdom to persist in preserving the British citizenship rights of anybody born in the North. Those kinds of specific rights of national difference will, I think, be relatively unproblematic. But there are questions that uh, absolutely call for our attention. The preface to the Constitution does look Catholic and Gaelic, and it's not inclusive. Our national anthem, when sung in Irish, um, is uh, warmly uh, applauded and enthusiastically celebrated, particularly at GAA games. But most people, I've found, don't know the the verses in English, particularly the third verse with its reference to going out to fight against the Saxon foe. Um, We need to look minimally at the lyrics of the national anthem, uh, maximally at replacing the preface with a broad and more inclusive preface. Uh, The Germans did that when they modified, in fact, it was the only modification they made to their basic law when they unified. They switched from uh, the previous uh, preamble to a newly constructed one, recognizing that German unification had taken place, we would almost certainly have to do the same. But your your earlier point, where you referred to um, a desire to see the dissolution, if you like, of deeply sectarian identities, that's a very important question because the way it manifests itself most directly is in education. And in education, there will be a a basic choice. If a devolved Northern Ireland persists, then it's likely to be the case that the existing uh, settlement of schooling will persist, namely Catholic schools, Protestant schools, and integrated schools, with each of them equally funded. Many might prefer to integrate all schools and to uh, see the disappearance of clerical involvement at any level. That may happen anyway. The the proportion of clergy available to teach in schools is now so small that clerical involvement over education is a disappearing phenomenon, particularly among Catholics. And uh, the clergy generally do not teach in in Protestant schools in the north, except on specific occasions where they're, they're having Bible readings. So some of the religious questions are disappearing in intensity. I think what will happen is a very different kind of debate over education. If you look at why the southern economy is so much more dynamic and productive than the northern one, one of the answers that many people insist on is that the southern education system has become much more comprehensive and inclusive and that more people at all levels and abilities qualify with some degree of skill or certification than their northern counterparts. 
that makes the southern uh, worker much more attractive to foreign investors. So if we were to have a devolved Northern Ireland, it might uh, preserve in amber uh, an educational system that is not suitable for the uh, modern world. The Northern system does extremely well by those who do very well in it, uh, who get A-levels, go on to university and so on. But it does appallingly badly on behalf of uh, very large numbers of young people, particularly young men, who, qualify, who, who don't qualify with, with any certification or any educational attachments at all. So we need to build that into the equation. To what extent will there be a uniform education system throughout the island? To what extent will we get rid of uh, surviving clerical dominance? And to what extent can we organise our educational systems to be productive for foreign and direct investment? Yes, and indeed, within Northern Ireland, within Northern Ireland itself, the you know uh, political disagreement over the the continuation of the eleven plus, which is a major contribution to to, to what you're talking about there, um, has tended to divide along party lines, particularly between between Sinn Fein and the DUP. So, so it is a live issue. But with, I mean, the, you mentioned an awful lot of stuff there. Um, I might I might come back to the the anthem question in a moment, just in relation to the education one. Um, there is the question of of the Irish language, which is compulsory up until leaving cert for um, for for pupils in the in the republic. That's clearly not tenable in a united Ireland, is it? I don't think so. Uh, I think um, a, that that question should be decided at school level rather than at county level or nationwide. Each school should be free to determine what languages should be taught. And it would be a reasonable option in Ulster uh, to make available both Irish and Ulster Scots with local schools and, and pupils selecting accordingly. So compulsory Irish for the North would, I think, be a mistake. And what about the rest of the what about the rest of the island? I think um, for the rest of the island, as, as I've suggested, the, the policy I think should apply at school level. Um, the the interesting thing about Irish is that compulsory Irish hasn't worked. But nevertheless, the, the language has persisted. It hasn't completely disappeared. Uh, it is uh, celebrated in everyday life. And I, I don't think the United Ireland should be about um, uh, putting the Irish language in the grave, to, to the contrary. But choosing uh, compulsion as a method of uh, preserving and disseminating the language rarely works. And we know that from our own experience. So having Irish available, uh, keeping its status as an equal language with English for uh, public communication is important. But I would remove Irish's, personally, if it was up to me, I would remove Irish's status as a superior language to English in matters of law and constitutional interpretation. I think that would not be a, a welcoming note uh, for Ulster Protestants. So lang language questions have to be explored. They have to be explored thoroughly. But many parts of the world uh, have linguistic diversity, and yet linguistic diversity does not lead to conflict. We, we can do better than we have done historically in this domain. 
And just to, just to come back to the anthem for a minute, I I I think from, I take it from the book that you're slightly fonder of the tune of Aaron Navian than than I am. But you know, beauty is in the the eye of the beholder. Um, uh, <laughs> well, indeed, I, I the one thing I would say is that the one thing that would cause me to take arms again, up against any future dispensation is if Ireland's call became uh, became the anthem. But um, I d- I don't think. I really agree on that. I don't think Ireland, I'm not sure that Ireland Navian can stand. And I, do we want some sort of horse designed by a committee akin to the South African anthem where, where you get a couple of stanzas of the sash and then you go into Ireland Navian or something? The mind, the mind boggles, really. The, the Afghans, who have not had a successful uh, political experience lately, um, have, a, have still, I think, a national anthem in which they name every single ethnic group. Uh, so they start with we, and then exhausted three stanzas later, they finish on the final ethnic group before beginning the song. Um, obviously, uh, that's not the way forward. If we are to change the anthem, there should be a process to change the anthem, and the public will need to be consulted. I think the Australians have, at various junctures, put their national anthem to, to referendum. So... Um, just as there's a Eurovision Song Contest, so there could be a contest over an appropriate new anthem. If there were to be a continuing Northern Ireland inside the United Ireland, it would be easier to have two different uh, anthems for certain occasions. Uh, the North would be part of the United Ireland, so the Irish National Anthem would be uh, played as and when it was appropriate on a an international location when Ireland was participating as such. But for other purposes, it might be possible to have uh, two anthems. Uh, I don't think that's highly likely, but it's a possibility. These questions are, I mean, they're often treated as, I suppose, lighter adjuncts to the really meaty questions of of economics, um, of structures around health and education, which we, which we talked about. But they're actually incredibly important, aren't they? In many ways, the way in which the the conflict such as it is continues now in Northern Ireland um, is around symbols. It is symbolic. It is conducted through uh, through symbols, and so flags, anthems, those kind of questions become very thorny. and And one of the things that 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 struck me in I I think a relatively recent opinion poll on what people thought about these issues was that the the people who had the hardest line on the nationalist side were Sinn Fein voters who. Equally, are the people who are most committed, in theory, at least to United Ireland. I wonder, is there a kind of a disjunction there? And you have a couple of interesting things to say in the book about Sinn Féin, which is currently the largest party in both jurisdictions, and how important its role should be, or perhaps shouldn't be, in the processes you're talking about. Well, that's a a multi-pronged question, so I'll I'll, I'll have to uh, try and give a multi-pronged answer. Symbolic questions are divisive if they are allowed to be questions of monopoly. Uh, My symbols must prevail over yours. Uh, I think in the event of a United Ireland, it would be much easier for the Irish nationalist tradition to accommodate the unionist identity. Orange marches are not going to be outlawed in the United Ireland. The Parades Commission has worked quite well. It should continue in its existing role. No one should attempt to ban the flying of the Union Jack um, outside people's own properties. With with luck in the north, a pattern should emerge of flying the 
flag of the United Ireland alongside any flag of Northern Ireland, if it uh, persisted in some form. And there's nothing to stop the Ulster banner also flying beside the uh, Republic of Ireland's flag on certain occasions. There are ways, in other words, of taking the heat out of symbolic questions and achieving inclusion and plurality. Yes, I agree, there has to be only one uh, flag for the country as a whole. And there, it would be s- senseless to have multiple anthems for different occasions. Uh, there has to be an ag- agreed process to get there. You asked about Sinn Féin. Uh, the point I make in the book is that Sinn Féin can't deliver a united Ireland on its own. If there is to be united Ireland, it will be the votes in the south of Fine Gael voters, Fianna Foyle voters, Irish Labour Party voters, the Greens, people before profit, and so on. Uh, it's not a Sinn Féin project, it's a national project. Within Northern Ireland, the votes that will be decisive in achieving a united Ireland are the votes of people who currently vote for the Alliance Party and for the STLP. Uh, and that the Liberal Protestants who favour a united Ireland generally support Alliance or the Greens. So any successful programme of reunification has to move beyond Sinn Féin. It has to be an all-party project. Now, we've we've seen um, with some limited success that Slauncher Care was launched as an all-party programme in which key players in a small party, the Social Democrats, uh, played a a vital role in um, making sure that a a committee of the Oireachtas could put forward successful proposals and other parties joined on to that. I think that process of all-party collaboration on designing the the terms of a new Ireland is one in which Sinn Féin should have a a role, but uh, in which it would be making a mistake sought to have a monopolistic or vanguard role. So, yes, if there's a united Ireland, it will be partly because of Sinn Féin voters, but Sinn Féin voters will not be enough, north north or south, to achieve Irish reunification. So a a much more pluralistic uh, project needs to be embarked upon uh, for the rest of this decade, a multi-party project to design the, the terms and conditions of a successful united Ireland. Isn't the reality that that um, the voters you talk about, the, the Liberal Unionists, the Alliance voters, the um, the soft nationalist SCLP voters, Sinn Féin are the least likely people to persuade them. It's much more likely that other parties on the nationalist side might be able to convince those voters to, to vote for a United Ireland. Yes, I, I think if it were to be the case that the the model of a United Ireland was being set forth by an all-party committee in which Eamon Ryan, um, Michal Martin, Leo Varadkar and their successors uh, were, to, were to be principal players, that would be more persuasive for this, the centre ground in Northern Ireland than um, Sinn Féin, Taoiseach. So th- th- those are the realities, and I'm sure that uh, on inspection... Uh, Sinn Féin is is fully aware of those difficulties. They have started to refer to the national question as a national question, not a party question. So um, with luck, uh, that will bear fruit in um, future compromises that 
Sinn Fein will have to contemplate over questions of national and collective identity. I believe I'm, I'm correct in saying that uh, uh, Mary Lou MacDonald has indicated flexibility on the flag and, um, and on the anthem. You, you make various suggestions in the book, including importing a version of the Dehant mechanism, which um, uh, which is the structure which allows parties access to the uh, to the power sharing executive in Northern Ireland. Uh, some people think it's very complicated. It's not really that complicated, but essentially it means that there's a there's a mathematical process which gives people access to to government positions. And you you suggest that might be used not for a permanent power sharing system in a united Ireland, but to um, to construct a cabinet, a coalition cabinet between agreeing parties in a, in, in a future coalition. Um, what's the rationale for that? Why, why would that be needed? Well, I make an argument in the book that the future party politics of a united Ireland will be multi-party. We're highly unlikely to change the voting system. We'll have our um, single transferable vote system. And we'll, we'll have it in a slightly better way if we apply things that we've learned from the north in how to have uniform constituency size and so on. So the, the world we will face is a multi-party world. And what I argue in the book is that you can see already uh, three possible coalition configurations in Irish futures. A centre-left coalition, a centre-right coalition, and a centrist coalition. And the key thing about a united Ireland is to ensure that Northerners, whether they be um, traditionally from unionist uh, communities or traditionally from nationalist communities, will be present regularly in one or other of those coalition formations. And I suggest that the evidence is that that, that would likely happen. But it's also going to be the case that as as time moves on, we, because of our proportional representation system, we'll have a, a multi-party system in which it might be difficult to form a government. And the advantage of the Dehant rule is that it achieves inclusivity on the basis of the support parties of one from the voters. And it gives you a decision rule for deciding which party gets first choice of ministries, which party gets second choice, and so on. And it produces a net proportional outcome. So I argue that the application of the Dahan process to southern government formation could resolve a lot of the petty disputes over which party is going to get which ministry. But most importantly, what it would accomplish is proportionality. And whether or not unionists choose to persist with unionist parties or to create with others, other parties under other labels, the joy of having both STV and the Dehant rule for cabinet formation is that each group will get proportional representation. That's on the full application of the Dehant model. In a less uh, demanding version of the Dehant model, Parties will get representation in the cabinet in accordance to their strength in Doyle era. And that's a reasonable principle. And what the the Dehant rule would do is uh, basically set out in advance how the parties would have to manage the allocation of portfolios uh, between them. It would reduce their flexibility, but it would speed up government formation. I have to confess, I'm not 
convinced by um, by by this proposal. I mean, for for a couple of reasons. One is that. Take, for example, the current uh, coalition in Dublin with three parties, two of almost equal strength and one which is smaller. The smaller party has done a little bit better pro rata in terms of its cabinet seats to to uh, to votes relationship. And that has that has quite often been the case in previous governments, including in governments where independents sat. And I'm not quite sure how the demand mechanism would, would apply to that as well. I mean, I, I think you propose this as an assistance to government formation. I wonder, might it actually um, be a constraint on the freedom to, to form a government? You, you are, of course, at liberty to refuse the merits of the, the proposal. Um, what, I, what I think is that if you, if you have coalition formation, uh, as now, you have six Fine Gael, six Fianna Fáil, three uh, members of the Green Party in the cabinet. That slightly overrepresents the, the Green Party. Um, I think the principle of proportionality is a reasonable one, and we don't actually want a world in which very small parties punch way above their weight. Uh, that's to give uh, vetoes to groups that are not particularly representative. Though, personally, I, I rather like uh, some features of the green agenda. So what the Dehant rule accomplishes is fairness to parties and fairness to their party's voters. It's a mechanism for ensuring that influence is in proportion to voting strength. And that's a reasonable, a very reasonable, and in some ways fundamental democratic principle. Um, yes, there are ways in which Dehant could be incorporated that are more inflexible than others, and I emphasize the the more flexible one. But what we're what brought this question about is the question of how we ensure inclusivity um, for unionists after reunification. And if we don't contemplate something like Dehant, we face the serious possibility that parties like the DUP, the Ulster Unionist Party, and traditional unionist voice, could be considered as taboo parties that parties would refuse to consider them as coalition partners. And that would end, that would produce a result in which we had a very proportional electoral system, but some parties were permanently excluded from access to the cabinet. So that's the reason for contemplating the Dehant rule, because it would mean that unionists would be represented in a cabinet even if nobody was enthusiastic about having them as coalition partners. There are other ways, I mean, we, there are other ways of doing it. You could have a, a fixed quota. You could require that two out of the 15 seats in the cabinet were always held by those people who were of a fixed Protestant identity or those who held British citizenship. But when you start doing that, we're back to the old problem that you raised earlier. We don't want to entrench certain kinds of identities permanently. Well, indeed, and that's sort of my second objection to the to the proposal, and which and which also kind of brings me to my to my last question today as well. I suppose as a uh, and I may I may have come across at this point as well as a as a hardened integrationist, uh, not an assimilationist, but an integrationist. I I personally would 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 welcome a situation where if the union with the United Kingdom comes to an end, the idea that a political identity political party political identity as as unionists which is which is the primary political identity of those three parties they all have the word unionist in their name that the raison d'etre changes perhaps not immediately but gradually they represent you know they represent a view they certainly represent a culture but that 
perhaps, and I may be being Pollyannish here, that some version of what happened after the treaty in the Free State will take place, which is that people who identified as as unionist, or indeed people who identified as constitutional Irish nationalists who weren't seeking Irish independence, they found their place. And their place was not to continue those identities forever, but it was in with, with new identities. Is that an unreasonable aspiration? It's not an unreasonable aspiration, and that could happen. And if it happened, I certainly wouldn't be against it. But you have to allow for the possibility that it won't happen, that the Ulster Unionist and Ulster Protestant identity is, so to speak, more baked in and harder than the one that existed in um, many southern communities before partition. And if if that's so, you have to ask um, the question, how do you incorporate and, and include them? Uh, or do you permanently exclude them? And my fear of their permanent exclusion is that we know that that's a recipe for, for subsequent conflict. If the rules are proportional then and they work, then each group would be represented in proportion to its numbers. Uh, nothing stops liberal Protestants and illiberal Protestants from joining different Irish parties if they want to. Nothing stops the creation of new parties under uh, any democratic Irish constitution. The virtue of both STV, PR, and DeHaunt is that the principle of proportionality applies whether or not you're representing a corporate group identity or, or a set of individuals. That would be the argument that I would make. We, we have, there, there are huge amounts of the book we haven't got into at all, particularly the, you know, the economic analysis, which, which, which runs quite deep and which uh, would take a whole other podcast, I think, I think, to get into. But maybe we'd just come briefly back to the point which I avoided at the very start, which is the question of how likely is this to happen? We know that it's in the Belfast Agreement, although I find the wording a little bit confused. It's in the gift of the UK government in the form of the Secretary of State. Um, if he or she believes that a, that a yes vote is likely, that's a very amorphous kind of a wording. But the Secretary of State is also permitted to call the referendum at any time as well as I understand it. What are the forces that are likely to drive a decision or a non-decision over the next few years? And what? how do you see the time frame working? The Secretary of State has discretion, as you suggest, in the calling of a referendum. Uh, But it's not unconstrained discretion. The UK ministers are responsible to the courts. So if there was clear evidence that support for unification had risen, this could take the form of uh, support for political parties dedicated to that objective in various uh, electoral fora, could take the form of sustained opinion polls, then a Secretary of State could be taken to court for not precipitating a a referendum. So it's not a completely, uh, it's not in the complete gift of the Secretary of State. But on the other hand, as is implicit in your question, there is a danger that a Secretary of State uh, might, for manipulative purposes, call a referendum before it was clear that there was majority support in the North for unification, in which case the Irish government would be caught flat-footed. So that's one of the reasons I argue that there should be full preparation for uh, reunification, because it's not in the Irish government's gift uh, to 
decide whether or not the British government precipitates a referendum. There's discretion. And the reason that exists in that form, it's, it's worth answering very briefly, is because in the Good Friday Agreement, each government recognized each government as sovereign in its own jurisdiction. And it would have been a strange thing to have given a foreign government, as the UK sees the Irish government, a role in deciding when its territory might be changed. So that's the uh, the basis for, for the rule. Um, I believe that by about 2030, the proportion of the electorate in the north that is not cultural Protestant by background will be at majority levels and, uh, and above. The electorate, those who can vote, will not have a dominant Protestant or British majority. It already doesn't, but the majority will be a non-Protestant, non-British majority. And I believe that it will be for them to decide the future of the North. And the decisions made by British governments since 2016 in particular have made it much more difficult to accept the previous vista, which is that cultural Catholics would be satisfied with a reformed union. Uh, I believe that the decisions made by the UK over Brexit have made it far more likely that by about 2030 there will be a clear uh, possibility of a victory for Irish reunification in referendums in the North. And that's why I argue in the book that that's the timescale against which we should prepare ourselves. It doesn't mean that the referendum would necessarily be won in 2030, And there's a provision in the Good Friday Agreement which allows for subsequent referendums uh, to be held, but no more, that there has to be a seven-year interval between one referendum and another. But if there is to be a referendum, it were best it were won, and it were best it were won decisively. And I think that's much more likely to happen if the government of Ireland is clearly prepared in advance. Making Sense of a United Ireland is published by Sandy Cove and it's available now from retailers. Brendan O'Leary, thanks very much indeed for joining us again today.